You're listening to the Physio Matters podcast in association with mehab.co.uk, and this is session 97. Hi, welcome back to the Physio Matters podcast. I'm still Jack Chu, and you're listening to episode 97, which is coming out day after, is it? The 2nd of January of 2022. And because you know, New Year, New Me is always the, always the mantra, isn't it? Uh, we're doing a behavior change episode with Joe Turner from Mehab, who's one of our partners who's been doing a lot of self care coaching type interventions with many of you, and you, you've, you've really enjoyed her work in the last year. And so it just seemed appropriate for us to talk about all things behavior change. Not just for you as individuals, but also for how you might initiate that in patients, which, of course, is also the center of rehabilitation now, isn't it, uh, to try and initiate behavior change. Many thanks to those of you that tuned in over the over last year's shows. Absolutely brilliant, especially those of you that have benefited from our work during the pandemic and trying to readjust your practices to new working methods. Um, huge thanks, of course, to Joe and Mehab for sponsoring not just this episode, but also working with us ongoing. Uh, do check them out, mehab.co.uk, for all your self-care needs. And you can join the Mehub community in which we're going to be making available a PDF um, which will be um, a really good way to kickstart your year, which will be based on this podcast as well. So a uh, free download there. Also worth mentioning, Rehab My Patient, uh, our, our regular sponsor and, and another partner. that I've got to mention them because they've got a brilliant new module with all of Joe Gibson's exercises on there now, as well as some other ambassadors that we've got some from, from some of our favourites that are going to be going on there soon. They've got a big S&C module coming up. They've also got Brad Neal's uh, Knee Rehab, uh, Mehmet Jem's doing some stuff with hips. It's, it's just, I can quite confidently now say, I was always fairly confident, but now I can confidently say it is the, the absolute best um, library of rehabilitation exercises. And the interface is so quick and super easy. WhatsApp, SMS, email, bank, done in PDF form. Obviously also printable videos, you know, line drawings. It's just dead thorough, dead intuitive, and you know, considered best in class by, by us and many. So uh, do check that out, uh, rehabmypatient.com forward slash physio matters for your free three-month trial. So I'm going to get stuck into this interview. Um, little more for me to say other than Happy New Year. And uh, do I'm excited to see uh, as you come along for the ride because we've got some brilliant stuff we'll be announcing soon as to what we're going to be doing into this year where we innovate once again. Um, and hopefully as the world starts to drag itself back to some sort of normal, um, which will be nice as well. But really looking forward to meeting many of you as well in person this year. Um, and so thanks for all your feedback and thanks for contributing to what is an incredible community of practice that is emerging around Physio Matters. So physio-matters.com for all of your CPD needs, absolute bargain memberships and packages available on there uh, for you and your team. So do check that out as well. All right, take care. I'll see you at the other side. So it's 2022, New Year's Day, purely because I'm so disorganised that this could have been recorded in good time, but instead this is the day before it's been released, just to put some pressure on our gym. And I'm delighted to be joined by Joe Turner, who we work closely with. Uh, many of you all have seen her work at Therapy Live and elsewhere through Mehab. Um, and so I'll allow Joe to introduce herself in a second as to why she is exactly the perfect person for us to talk to about behaviour change and why this time of year we end up talking about this topic. and. Uh, 
as important as ever, but I think in these weird world times of, of pandemic or attempts to emerge from a pandemic and stuff, it's that sometimes it feels like it's hard to get your mojo. I certainly just been saying to Joe before we went live that I look at myself here on Zoom fuller of faith than I'd like to be. And I know what the scales have been saying this Christmas. And so we all often want to try and take a bit of a, a health kick. I think one of the things that's interesting as well, and one of the things we'll visit on this podcast is that we as people might want to do that, but also we are often the people responsible for initiating behavior change and instigating it in others or helping to guide it, let's say, not initiating it. Maybe that's the better, better way of putting it is helping others, people coming to us with those as goals, uh, whether that's related to their injury and pain management or uh, sometimes if ever there was a time that people would present um, having decided to get on top of something, right? It, it might not have been something that, that it's been something they've been living with and that they want to make changes in their life. So we end up with that dual role, really. We might have things that we want to do for ourselves, but then also things that we might want to understand and help others with. So we're going to tap into uh, bits of the evidence and bits of the literature, but more importantly, really practical tips um, that are things that Joe um, and, and obviously I'll weigh in myself uh, have used over the years to try and initiate uh, positive behavior change at this time of year. But anyway, Joe, thanks for joining me. And uh, could you just tell the listeners a little bit about you and why, as I said, you're such a perfect guest for us to kickstart the year with? Yeah, Happy New Year. Thank you for having me on the show. Um, I'm Joe Turner and I am an MSK physiotherapist of now about 25 years. Uh, but more recently, in the last few years, I took uh, or equipped myself with a life coaching qualification and kind of made sense of that really by niching into providing coaching uh, services for physiotherapists and clinicians and MSK clinicians. Um, so why am I the ideal person? Well, it ties into what you just said, really, um, Jack. So that 25-year career as a physio has spent trying to um, work out what may, what may make people change their behaviour, what may not, observing what works and what doesn't, and getting some surprises along the way. And then actually through life coaching, um, I've discovered some perhaps slightly different methods than I, I might have classically used in physiotherapy um, and, and finding those really helpful and interesting. Is that one of the sort of central things that people come to you for in your more new role within coaching, that people are looking to change behaviours but get stuck? Is that fairly typical? Yeah, I mean, essentially a, a coaching question would be, I'm at a certain place, I would rather be somewhere else, can you help me get there? And so, yeah, by very nature, that involves a process of behaviour change. Mm, that makes sense. I want to get stuck into the timing issue i mean me and you have talked on my daily show on chewing it over about this at various different intervals in the pandemic didn't we about what you know why this is a time for and there were various moments in which people were, were really feeling quite exposed etc mm. but new year is one that always comes around people even the mantra of new year new me and people using it as a, as a landmark in which they then initiate a change in themselves and i'm not even going to get stuck into new year's resolutions specifically and, and, and unpick that we kind of did a bit of that last year and i'm sure mm. we can make those resources available again but it's kind of instead what do you think it is about this time of year symbolically or otherwise that makes this such a, a time for behavior change or at least attempts of it mm, well you're right symbolically it's a great time for behavior change you know, we may have um, woken up this morning full of enthusiasm uh, and have a list in our heads of things that we would like to be different. Um, some of us may have spent a period of time reflecting on last year. Um, I've seen an awful lot of stuff on social media and um, lots of 
uh, advice these days to go through that process. So yes, symbolically, it's a very obvious time to change. But actually, there's there's quite a few reasons why it's not the best time to initiate change. Um, there's a there's a concept in coaching called towards and away from motivation, right. and at this time of year, there's a lot of away from motivation. And what that essentially means is there is something in your head um, which you have logged that you want to change. And it unfortunately is often driven by kind of frustration, irritation, fear, something that at the moment you're very focused on and you would like to be different. So you've just given a great example, the way your your face looks on a a Zoom call. I'm thinking about the way my waist feels in my jeans this morning. Those are things that we would like to move away from. So I'd like to move away from the fact that my waistband feels tight. You'd like to move away from the fact that your face looks bigger on Zoom than you want it to. Now, the the problem is that those away from motivations are often short-lived and often not sufficient motivation for sustainable long-term change, as opposed to the opposite, towards motivation, which is something um, still in the future, but on a a longer-term scale. And there's there's more inherent and sustainable motivation behind it because it's something that keeps building. So say, for example, um, I wanted to lose weight and be fitter because uh, a little bit older than I am, maybe a grandchild is on the way and I would like to be running around playing tennis with that grandchild in the next five years. And then maybe that grandchild grows up and is interested in something else. And there's kind of this ongoing motivation. But at the moment, we are we tend to be at this new year point, very, very motivated away from things in the short term timescale. And the other reason that it's not necessarily ideal is more more a seasonal thing, really. So um, people may or may not be into uh, the feeling of the seasons, but nature is often a really good guide as to to uh, what behavior may be most helpful at a particular time. And if you just think about the metaphor of winter that we're in the middle of at the moment, there are there are seeds in the ground. There are things that are ready to come up. There's a lot of potential in the earth, but it's not time yet. If you tried to grow fruit trees in January, you wouldn't do very well, but you know the seeds are there. So to use that metaphor, it's, it's a quiet time. It's a time for trusting that the stuff is there, but it's also a time for creating fertile conditions for those shoots to come up when, it, when the time is right. So I think it's a great time to think about change, but maybe more in that planning process rather than going hell for leather, all guns blazing on January the 1st. Well, it's definitely more of a, uh, and that's that's definitely interesting and extends my point into the, into January further than I was thinking, but I always found it um, a, a shame and, and, and people really do put themselves under a, a, a massive amount of pressure on the 1st of January when they wake up hungover with a cupboard full of treats from the Christmas, um, still some, still uh, about three cheese boards worth of cheese in the fridge. You know, I just yeah. find it fascinating that people would want to make or think they could pressurize themselves into a major health kick there, um, or that their, their favorite their favorite things have been bought for them in uh, only only a week before. Mm. Whereas that, that that's a more acute thing uh, and, and more of a playful point. 
whereas you've then extended that into the fact that then timing wise there are various other reasons um, and, and even weather and circumstance and access and and reacclimatizing back into a work environment and stuff like that that then exposes you to some of the stresses that might then lead you to some of the habits that you try to change mm. and therefore um, you know it's, it's useful to, to encourage people to apply a little bit of pause um, and then to not feel like it needs to be a really uh, hard and fast rule on that on that New Year's Day. Um, I think I'd like to just ponder on as well, though, the fact that that interval, even though it's symbolic, even though people know in, in the heart of hearts that it's not something that's like overt and meaningful and there's no sort mm. of cosmic justice that's going to be served upon them if they don't uh, comply, it's still something that is is... You know the, the fact that it's a, the fact that it's a new year, and what am I going to do in this calendar year? And it's a time that we've often looked backwards as well as to what has occurred. And even yeah. our devices have, have told us and served as pictures and memories, and 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 have, have landmarked it in those sorts of arbitrary chunks. It is something that therefore can be channeled for good. I hope, unless obviously feel free to puncture that. But as far as I can see, there is then done well uh, an opportunity for us to to allow ourselves to wash ourselves off of the of the year that's gone by especially the past one yeah no you're right and I, I think actually that reflection process that I alluded to is is possibly the more important part of that um because you can be very you can be quite down on yourself can't you um with new year's mm. resolutions it's all I must stop doing this and I must be better at this um, but that reflection process is an important celebration um, that needs to come first. And actually, the process of reviewing what went well is probably more important than what didn't go well. And what went well is is a really useful way to so you, you can list off these things that went well in your year. And there's another important question. Like, what does that say about you? So if, if you were involved in these things that went well, what, where, was, where were you in that process? And that can really help you identify things that, A, you're good at, B, you're interested in, C, you're equipped to do well. So you know, maybe those are things you want to do more of. And that's a much more positive New Year's resolution to do more of something you were already doing quite well, rather than beating yourself up for something which is a complete step change for, from what you were doing before. Sure. No, that makes sense for sure. We've mentioned that, that there are two aspects to this in a way, whereby our listeners might be <coughs> thinking and reflecting on behaviour changes that they want to initiate in themselves. But then also, we are going to be more exposed this time of year to people uh, that, are, that are wanting to, to do that, that we want to help them with. Similarly, increasingly over the last even, I'd say, 20 years plus, the, the evidence has pointed towards the fact that we are not going to be making fleeting changes to people's tissues and stuff, or mm. behaviour change, or trying to persuade someone to do something that will um, help them with, with be that either self-management or rehabilitation that then is a more active process in their own recovery has ended up being central to our world in ways that kind of do gut some people, myself included sometimes, you know, it was an easier, it was an easier thing when we thought we could push, push things back into, into shape or, or break down scar tissue. So behavior change is kind of central to our game anyway. Is there a relevant difference between the ways in which we might want to initiate ourselves as healthcare professionals that, that should have a bit of insight into this and the way in which we might encourage others to? Like, are there, you know, crisp lines, blurred lines, no lines, what's the crap? Um, yeah, I think blurred lines. So 
essentially, no, I don't think there is a huge difference um, in how you would motivate yourself as opposed to somebody else. But I think but you're absolutely right in that we might consciously play two different games um, when trying to support other people. So I think there is value in that short term away from pain motivation. Right. And, you know, we're all, I hope, a little bit more grown up in our conversation these days in that we acknowledge that we use some hands on techniques and some some short term techniques you know we can choose what explanation we use for those but but to get that feeling of a short-term win is very helpful but I think what's changing is us looking at how can we actually tap into something which is going to um going to create longer term change so there's there's a triad um with change or with behavior change theory that people will change when they've got the motivation the capability and the opportunity so what I'm talking about here is finding motivation and you can't do that for the person. But I've talked a lot um, on therapy live sessions actually about asking more questions and listening for longer to the answers rather than quick uh, questions and then working out how we deliver the solution. So spending more time letting the patient work out and tell you what their motivation is. So then you know what you've, you've got to work with, what the, what the goal is. Um, and your education is to an extent giving them that capability part of the triad. Um, so yes, your traditional um, physiotherapy explanations, your anatomical knowledge that will have a certain value, although the literature would suggest that's a little bit overrated. Um, that uh, you know, we, we think if we educate people that if they know the facts, then obviously they're going to change their behaviour. But actually, the evidence for that is quite poor. And mm. and with other um, other studies with humans in general, is almost a, a, an opposite effect. I remember watching something years ago um, where they were scanning people's. They gave people information about uh, the stats, the likelihood, the probability of things like being run over by a bus or getting cancer or ways where bad things could happen to you. And actually told them the percentage probability and then put them under a scanner, brain scanner, and asked them to predict. And and almost exclusively, they underrated the probability of those things happening. And I can't remember which part of the brain was lighting up when that was happening. But the conclusion was we're actually programmed to be incredibly optimistic about the likelihood of bad outcomes, and therefore less motivated to change our behaviour just because we know the facts. Mm. Um, I think we we know as well, it's it's naive to um, associate humans as being purely rational actors or that there's a there's an inherent weakness that comes from um sort of um, things like emotions of 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 fear um and the way in which that that might behave now we we sometimes want to counteract that and there's a lot of uh, chatter and pop pop science around thinking fast and slow and things like that but i know Mm. um we've both we're both fans of and read jonathan Haidt's work which i'd encourage people to look at with regards to the elephant and rider metaphor that he uses mm. um and and so i won't i won't try and butcher and summarize that and so do look that up guys we'll, we'll make reference to it in the in the show notes and the pdf that we're going to make available for download but the reason i raised that is because the the way in which we know people will um sometimes lose touch with how uh, how 
influenced by their own more visceral emotions and stuff. And the fact that people might associate the fact that then they'd be more fearful when they get onto a plane, even if they're not particularly fear of, they have a fear of flying, but the novelty effect of it and, and also the fact that then it feels so bizarre, um, they might be fearful of that, whereas they'd be, they'd be then relieved and, and not, not thinking uh, for a moment about fear when they get into the taxi at the other side, when that is a much more inherent risk, right? They're more dangerous for you to get into a car than it is into a plane. But we can understand the number of factors there, from, from novelty to, to um, all those other things we say we could say about it. That means that people are being pushed around by more things than they're in pure control of, and, and helping people to understand that can can go a long way. Because you've mentioned it before about the pressure that people put on themselves for this, um, as if they they can be in full control of all emotions and faculties around this stuff, and not cutting themselves a little bit slack um, when they're trying to make make changes and, and hopefully incremental ones if we're not wanting to be we know we know we can't just present the facts and get on with it we're kind of aware aware of that what therefore has emerged both in practice and in the evidence that then is the better the better strategy um well <laughs> if you forgive me i will try and butcher the elephant and rider analogy a bit oh, go for it's it. really useful so yeah I, I refer to it in coaching a lot actually so if people aren't familiar with it there's this idea that um think of an elephant a large elephant with a small rider on top and um the the rider you can use it as a kind of um analogy for your brain as well so the the much larger parts of our brain are the old ancient perhaps emotion driven parts of us um and the actual uh, cognitive executive functioning parts are, are much smaller and so you could use those also as metaphors for the small rider on top of the big elephant the point is we like to think of ourselves as um thinking beings that occasionally uh, function from emotions and feelings whereas the opposite is, is really true that we're emotional beings who occasionally apply logic um so the the elephant and rider analogy is that the rider is in control or thinks he's in control of this big being. And if he tries to steer that, that elephant with logic, that's not what the elephant functions on. The elephant functions on feelings and emotions. So the, my understanding of that, that whole um, metaphor is that you are not going to get that big emotion to change path, change direction without addressing how it feels and what motivates it. And that's a very simple way to translate that back to patients. Just keep asking, you know, how do you feel when this happens? When you couldn't play squash, how did that make you feel? What, what would feel really good now? What, what would feel like support? What would feel like a really good outcome from this treatment session? And I know these um, are quite sort of jargony questions and they can sound really irritating. And, and with certain patients, you might want to reframe them. But it, I think it's just keep coming back to, how does this make you feel and, and what, what outcome do you want? Not these are the statistics that suggest to me that this is factually a bad idea for you to be doing it. And you know yes. that and don't you know it? And let's just emphasize those again. Um, yeah. And then that uh, that metaphor carries in many different ways. I know that then people will have heard the expression. It's a tough ship to turn around or a big ship to mm. turn around. It's a kind of does the same thing with the elephant <laughs> as well, in a sense that these are things that are a little bit cumbersome as well. And they're not as agile as we mm. sometimes like to like to think. Um, so, yeah, definitely something we'll, we'll signpost people to. But no, you did a better job than I did. I, I bottled <laughs> it, didn't I? But thank you for, for unpacking that a little more. Um, with regards to the it's very oft disputed um 
area really and when we have both done a bit of a deep dive into the literature on this ahead of this call um we both noticed i'm sorry to put words in your mouth feel free to disagree but we noticed that there's more theory than there are intervention studies right and and, and i'm not dismissing the theory but it's just that that is it's an area that is pontificated about by very bright people that end up coming to quite different conclusions, especially in the sort of psychological literature. But then when it come when the rubber hits the road on the intervention studies, um, they've had a replication crisis that's fairly well documented on many mm. of these things. Um, what's your general take on the evidence and how how applicable have you found that evidence as someone that's had to apply it in? in a more overt way than maybe I have. Obviously, I'm integrating it into my rehab, but I'm not necessarily, that's not the only show in town, whereas in some of your work, I mean, that's that kind of primary goal, isn't it? Mm. Yeah, no, I agree with you. And it's one thing I find frustrating, actually, about the, the coaching process, that there's not a lot of, as you say, um, I think it's not just the problem that there's not evidence for specificity of, of interventions. There also isn't a lot of, hard um statistics around um around behavior change itself um the the only real stuff i've found is um so there's some interesting studies that look at the difference between individual change as opposed to population change um i remember reading a uh an article that reflected back on the do you remember the um olympics what was it like legacy for it was like a, supposed to be this huge sporting legacy wasn't there that you know effectively the yeah. whole population would suddenly become really interested yeah, in yeah. sport um and a lot was invested in that and the outcomes of that were really poor and the um <clears throat> the really the conclusion was that the the individual the things that will motivate an individual you can't just extrapolate then to a population um because it's so it's it's dependent on the culture you grew up in your internal beliefs um the influences that you come under through your career and your life and your family um so i think the implication was to create population change you've got to look at the individual but sorry i'm dodging your question a bit because they're just there there aren't a lot a lot of statistical um facts yeah. to justify um one technique over another but um, gosh isn't that just like physio and as you were mm. talking it reminded me of the frustrations of doing my msc in pain and just thinking well i, I am actually it didn't frustrate me that much because i'm a right geek and i loved all the theory but it, it, essentially it came down to yes there's all this amazing neuroscience um at the end of the day we know exercise helps but not even any particular type of exercise and I've, i found that frustrating in the same way that it just doesn't seem to translate to so here's here's one thing that's better than another for many people that really bothers them because it feels like their expertise is tied up in that specificity mm. um and, and that's one of the things that uh, i know we've we've discussed before i i suppose would would be i find that it's a shame when people are quite dogmatic about particular techniques and styles when the evidence can't support that level of conviction. But then also, I find that if there's some evidence, supposedly evidence-informed nihilism that sometimes occurs, where people therefore think it's not worth giving it a whirl, and yeah. there's some very human-to-human -human interactive discussion, discussions and, and sort of Socratic questioning that just elicits um, change, that granted is more difficult to measure granted it ends up being a real melting pot of cbt act mi and various other acronyms that makes it hard to then 
create appropriate intervention studies and, and, and test against it. Then you've got this credentialing issue with regards to who's delivering that and how well did they deliver it that makes it hard to measure in, in studies. But as a general rule, there is something that is on, on the in the body of sort of say counselling, coaching and, and other interventional psychological literature, you do end up in this situation where you're trying to elicit self-efficacy in what can be then their specific interests and goals, which makes it then quite a diverse aspiration. And therefore, when you say breaking that down or whatever technique you decide to use interventionally, it's going to be so vastly different because of the way in which the goal is different. And especially we've been championing on the MSK podcast and stuff and that the evidence for, say, the PSFS over other measures is because the patient-specific functional score it brings in those behavior change variables inherently to it, right? You're going to have changed behavior sometimes to have been able to then take the stairs rather than the lift again. And that whilst an indirect, you know, it used to get criticized for being an indirect measure of MSK progress. I, when we realized eventually that your MSK is never disembodied from the other parts of your own system or, or the, or your psychology or the social environment of which you exist, that becomes less important so the specificity became less important do you feel in the sort of coaching landscape that that is the psfs model compared to the vast model of or whatever it might be if i was to juxtaposition those is that why we end up being a bit wishy-washy with the, the specifics because it always needs that the only specificity that matters is the individual's goals i think so yeah and i was thinking of the elephant and the rider again as you were talking so if we're not careful we end up treating the elephant and then asking the rider to provide the outcome measure um and, and it's <laughs> apples and pears isn't it um yeah so yes uh, yes is the answer to your question because the the if you if we keep going with it you, know, you ask the elephant um you know how is that for you the elephant as a as a feeling emotional being is going to give you a feeling emotional response yes i feel a bit better can i tell you specifically why and what specific thing you did that made me feel better no um so yes it, it's like in that wishy-washy realm isn't it do you have any specifics when it comes to New Year's resolutions? Because I think of, of all things, they're probably things that have been tested to high heaven because they are easier to compartmentalise, aren't they? Like people have these aspirational goals and stuff. And so that's almost uh, in this realm. And, he, you know, I can imagine a, an, an interventional trialist's uh, wet dream, really, that they can <laughs> package this up easier. So what, what's that look like? What's the evidence? Yeah, so I, I did have a little look um, before we spoke, actually. And, um, yeah, there are some numbers on that and people find it quite fun to, to uh, report on those. So um, there's obviously a little bit of variation in different studies, but um, of people who set New Year's resolutions, apparently in the first week, 75% are still successful, which to me sounded quite high. Um, 71% in two weeks, 64% at one month, 46% at six months, but then at a year, 10%. Now, actually, I, I was almost pleasantly surprised by that, that even yeah. 10% um, were still in play a year later. Yeah. Um, but obviously there's there's no specifics there about what the um what the resolution was and what the process that person applied was but interestingly there are some some statements in these studies that um you're going to be more successful if you actually make the resolution if you make the statement to yourself and apparently slightly more successful if you frame it as a question either to yourself or to somebody else if we go back to treating patients so will I, will you do this will i do that so that you have to actually yeah. answer it and then i think critically um 
put a plan in place that involves a long-term vision and short-term actions and actually write them down and verbalize them. I mean, that, that goes back to very sort of basic business coach technique that it's the person who creates the plan that actually achieves the outcome, even if the plan changes. Of course, yeah, that's it. Yeah, good plans, but uh, bad, pl- bad plans better than no plan in many ways because people there's something to that. People are concerned as well. When it comes to health-related New Year's resolutions, it's always been a concern that people will be like, I'm quitting chocolate, and then they can't get enough sweets for 12 months, you know. I don't think you'd have it quite as overt as this, but, yeah, just swapping out um mm. swapping out um bad habits really i even know i've had patients that have then said i'm going to do more walking i've got this new fitbit it's a couple of years ago they were all the rage got this new fitbit and i'm going to do more walking I'm, I'm going to get my steps in um and this particular patient that always rings a bell to me is that she then started skipping zumba to make sure she got a step counting because it wasn't really <laughs> reading her the way i don't know i always always hoped it's based on like a pedometer type system isn't it um or at least i yeah. thought it was at that point maybe my naivety at the time but i always thought that then the zumba had only boosted numbers but mm. she was frustrated by that but because she was because she was on this step count thing she then lost it got a bit socially isolated and missed her zumba buddies you know so a few months in it became clear that that wasn't wise because she'd just become a bit one track minded rather than thinking about what is the call why are you trying mm-hmm. to get your step counts up and stuff and she kicked herself you know she went daft she'd just become um really resolute on said resolution and so it was just again that but they're, they're the useful thing in a way for her is that she was under our rehabilitation guidance that made it then I was in a good position to be able to just sort of coach on that and just say, well, well, let's not forget why you're doing this. And, and mm. that, you know, it doesn't sound like that's necessarily a positive change in every which way. Well done on your step count. But if you're missing these people and that had a real social aspect to it. Um, and, and so she reconvened that and found that better balance. And so whilst a bit of a cartoonish example in many ways, it's a very real one and one that we've all got to try and make sure we keep in touch with and make sure that we then, Ask the right questions of our patients to truly understand as much of their world as you can where appropriate to make sure that they're not necessarily getting one track minded and feeling like they're obliged to. Like they they might come to you. I've had that before where people have come and said, it's about time I got my knee sorted. And they don't realize that the way in which they would need to do that and the way in which we would like them to do that, considering our evidence informed opinions now, is for us to try and think of sustainable integrated strategies from to rehabilitate around that problem rather than them becoming so focused on it that they therefore mm. divorce themselves from their normal routine too far because we know that that's not going to be compatible to long term change. But if we don't have good quality subjective assessments or we end up thinking, right, yeah, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to follow that enthusiasm, become really focused on your knee for a bit then we're going to lose touch and, and not yeah. get the outcomes that we know we need so it's kind of just that make sure we, we don't lose the wood for the trees I guess. yeah and also I, mean, I find myself repeatedly asking patients and clients if they actually enjoy the thing they've just suggested to me that they are definitely going to <laughs> yeah, gonna take up running do you like running no I hate it <laughs> okay <laughs> should try and find something you're slightly more uh, motivated yeah. Please. <laughs> yeah I think one of the things as well though is that, and, and I <laughs> I don't know if you, I drove here um, and encountered far more joggers than there is that, that normal, you know, it's slightly later in the day than I'd normally drive it, but I was surprised and, and, and mm. just, you know, smiling at the fact that I'm coming to this podcast to talk about these things. But, but then there was also something that we, I can admit that that lifted me and it swept me away a little bit and the enthusiasm of some 
And so if you're presented with that natural optimism that sometimes comes this time of year, then we as therapists could could just sort of mm. follow along to it. And so it's almost like a part of me wants to go like, ride that wave of optimism. We could do with that, but then also wouldn't be good for our patients or for ourselves for that to then crash. I mean, the cliche goes as well that people, you know, the gyms are busy in, in January and the physio clinics mm. are busy in February because people overdo it or overload or whatever. Um, but as a, as a general rule, have you given thought before to like whether or not those waves of, of, of emotion that aren't necessarily always grounded in the rational, should, should we say, or, or, or people aren't being balanced? Is that something that we as therapists or, or you as a coach can sometimes get, get, get swept up in short termism? Yeah, I think so. And particularly more so, I think when perhaps I'm working with groups and doing classes and things, you talk about what's going on in the right. um, pop culture and yeah, definitely. Right. I mean, so, it's it's a um it's a gift isn't it um to use and and that's i don't think that's an away from motivation that's that's creating something inspiring um right. like oh, what do we think about this do you feel good about that yeah let's let's move towards it and you feel it with things like comic relief don't you and um, yeah and there's this general as you say optimism and, and actually while you were talking i was thinking about what's going on specifically in the world with the pandemic now where i mean it's so interesting, isn't it, that our, our numbers, our infection rates are absolutely bonkers. And yet, I don't know about you, but I'm feeling that the general conversation and people's reflection on what they're reading and hearing in the news is, oh, you know, it's, it's sounding a little bit better. Um, you know, the hospital, the critical thing is that the hospital admissions haven't gone as crazy. And, you know, it, it, I'm sure, uh, well, yeah, absolutely sure that that, that this is part of a narrative that has been consciously um, cultivated and, and um, built upon. But I think people's behaviour and their intention to uh, look after themselves and others at the moment is possibly even greater than when the news was all bad and, you know, we, we really didn't know what was going on and the hospital admissions mm. were terrible. I think we do, as humans, we want to ride an optimism wave naturally don't we um yeah yeah i think if we can help our patients get on top of those waves yeah why not yeah we need need to tap into what is don't we i mean we can't we can't radically try and change change cultural optimism in any given Mm. clinic intervention so no you're right (laughs) we need to try and be in touch with and tap into it and also remind our patients that we live in that world too and yeah there there isn't a there's often only a hair's breadth between us and the the patients in which we serve or at least there should be if we're not arrogantly putting ourselves loftily Mm. in some sort of pedestal um the popular line i would say is that you should change for you. You know, you mm. need to you need to have that intrinsic um, motivation and locus of control that's going to then centre and ground your behaviour change. Yet, I will admit that I've then I've witnessed many times and and, and as regularly as the other that uh, people will sometimes be really motivated to change for others, uh, loved ones, or there's something that's happened, an externality or whatever that's that, that's made them then initiate that. I wonder if we could maybe reflect on that motivation piece, like mm. what is it that either initiates it and what sustains it with regards to do you need to be introspective and really soul search in order to, to find that spark? Or is there is there um, good reason why you might, you might feel motivated and even could sustain uh, a change 
for others or, or, or in whatever mm. capacity? No, it's a good question. Um, I think it's quite circumstantial. Um, so I'm just thinking if if you are behaving in such a way that, say, your spouse who you care deeply about is, is affected um, and tells you they're affected by your behaviour, then there's going to be there's going to be motivation to change for as long as they're pissed off with you basically um so it's back to that away from motivation isn't it as soon as they're not annoyed with you anymore then that motivation to change has gone unless along the way you've then found some intrinsic motivation you say you're a smoker or something and um it's it's really affecting your partner and they're honest about it and they tell you about it and you can really see how much it's upsetting them so in that moment you think right okay i'd I personally am still motivated by the short-term pleasure, the the high of the of, of smoking, but I can see counter to that how much it's hurting this person I love. Oh, this person now gives you a pat on the back because you you know they can see that you're changing. That short-term motivation is gone, but you know maybe by um, cutting out the cigarettes for a while, you started to to feel some changes within yourself, or you've taken up a new activity, or something becomes more intrinsic. Um, so I yes, I think you can change your behaviour on behalf of other people, but I think in the long term, I would say there's got to be some some switch to intrinsic motivation. Um, if you if you're on the other side of the fence and you are trying to change the other person's behaviour, and again we can go back to physio. Um, as you know, let's not take it back to physio. If you keep it back to that that sort of spouse relationship, one way the affected spouse could maintain it is to make it very clear where the level of the boundary is. So, you know, this is affecting me. I'm no longer willing to tolerate it. Therefore, I'm asking you to do this and maybe even issue a sanction. Um, But then accountability. So I'm going to keep checking in on you. There's this principle called, um, I think it's Hawthorne principle, that we are much more motivated to change when we think we're being watched and effectively accountability assigned to somebody else is a process of being watched and reported on. Um, so, yeah, the, the other the other analogy you could draw from your question is is the pandemic again. So, um, if you're if you're essentially a young, fairly fit person without um, uh, conditions that are making you more vulnerable to COVID then you may be less motivated to wear a mask for your own behalf. But there was there were lots of headlines, weren't there? Like it's, it may not affect you, but somebody's nan may die. Um, I think those were effective for some people in the short term. Um, it, it depends on your faith in, in humans, doesn't it? Um, I mean, people will say that essentially we're motivated towards pleasure and reproduction (laughs) and um, those two things essentially will drive us from a very internal and individualistic point of view Um, and it probably is sadly a fair amount of truth in that but then you look at the way different nations behaved in in the pandemic quite early on I remember hearing reports that British people were the least British and US was least likely to be successful introducing restrictions because we we just we're not motivated to act on behalf of the whole population and the whole nation, as opposed to perhaps um, in some of the Asian countries, they put the success, some of the success down to the fact that they're just used to following for the greater good rather than for the individual. 
Mm. So, um, long, long answer to your question, Jack. But I, I no, no. But then, but that, that, that was always fascinating that those assumptions then didn't carry over, or they felt that they carried over. Um, some would argue in some places, and they're not in others. With regards to vaccination taking and things like that, then that, that there was a, there was um, you know as far as sort of medically selfless acts uh, in many ways, people mm. were uh, were seen, especially for, for the young, um, compared to. Um, other societies that that were you know suggested to be more communal. I think one of the things that people miss as well with regards to that that evidence, because it is good evidence. Let's say let's just be be crass about it and say that everyone's just aspiring to reproduce. Um, but essentially, the way in which then as complex societies, the way in which your likelihood of your status increasing enough for you to be a, uh, a an attractive mate is often communal compliance and yeah. so the people people sometimes think of it as like a narrow hedonism um that we're gonna that we're gonna aspire to, to to pleasure and to orgasm wherever possible whereas recognizing then that the way in which you might access resources um and 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 mates is going to be one that becomes mm. naturally lead to uh, some of the things that could go the the other way I mean, it's a bit of a, you know, unfortunately it leads to false altruism, virtue signaling sometimes as well, other people and, and, then, mm. and then acting that out in, in, in a way that's false. But as a general rule, it's more, it's more complex than that. And I think that that's what's been mm-hmm. borne out from behaviour change. Uh, if the, you know, if we, if we're honest in the pandemic, because we've all been watching on at that, and we've all suddenly known what epidemiology means, and we've all started to recognise that there's these data points across the board that we all need to be more in touch with, um, which which is fascinating. Do you do you feel do you feel that the the feel the pandemic has 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 led to it certainly led to more thoughtfulness about about behaviour change and about compliance and about what levels of you know consents back on the map in many ways beyond you know people you know, consent used to be it used to be a, a word with regards to sort of sexual consent or people you know that felt like the only time it really had a touch point in cultural lingo whereas mm. now people are like what they will and won't consent to or how well informed their mm. consent is etc do you think that's had a positive effect with regards to how we're going to be able to initiate behavior change in ourselves and in others or has it led to a more radical skepticism that might be difficult for us to shake off what's your general take on that mm. that made it better or worse um, I think it's raised awareness, as you say, that we, um, that can, yeah, that there is a consent issue that we don't just have to follow. Um, you know, I think maybe people who are naturally compliant um, may have been interested in, you know, just, oh gosh, you know, I, I don't actually have to do, particularly at this stage in the pandemic, I don't have to do what I'm told all the time. I mean, the early pandemic fed quite nicely into people who are rule followers, didn't it? And, and you know, mm. can them, see they were really comfortable with that. And yeah, I can see the boundaries. And that's become a bit more tricky. Um, I, I, I don't know if it's better or worse. Um, I, I think it's been really interesting to watch that pattern. There's almost like an inertia that needs to be overcome, doesn't there, with, um, let's use the mask wearing. You know, do you remember at the start, we, we would all put our masks on as we go into the supermarket, feel a bit silly, um, you know, look slightly nervously at each other and maybe have a little giggle about it. Um, and, and then that changed. But there's almost like this point that we have to get over where we collectively 
um, shift our mindset. Do you, do you know that, um, have you heard of that study where they put people in a room and they feed smoke into the room to see when people will leave? Um, no, I haven't. So there's a the study room is an empty room with um, seats in it. And to start with, uh, they just put one person in the room and they start pumping smoke in and the person understandably leaves the room fairly quickly um, and then they put more and more people in right. and it's <laughs> they're actually um, more likely people spend people were more likely to spend longer in the room when there are other people in there as they sort of collectively decided whether it was embarrassing to get up or sensible sure. to leave or whatever so that kind of herd effect um, yeah I, I think Jack we're just I think we're more aware of ourselves um, in terms of consent and behaviour change, but I, I don't think I can answer whether it's better or worse. Do you have an opinion? I'm going I'm to ask it on a regular basis as the year goes on. Yeah. <laughs> I think because uh, because I'm 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 just I'm I'm grappling with that. I think that's quite where my question comes from, really, Joe. Is mm. seeing if you could help me because because I'm struggling with where I'm at with it. The part of me part of me thinks that that um, that people are, are then. Um, naturally more in touch with that in such a way that then um might well play out well for us in healthcare almost that that people are a bit more in touch with not only what they are and aren't happy with in in in, in um in suggestions and guidance and evidence or whatever but mm. also that they're just a bit more healthy i think it coincides with health consciousness in an interesting way that might mean that people might might become obviously i don't want to join initiate blind compliance from my patients so I quite like the fact that then on the other side if there is a bit of a natural skepticism and the eyebrows raise I love those patients more than any really that will that will challenge mm. and that will then make me justify what I've suggested a third way or why might that be compared to my aunt's cousin who's doing it this way I quite like that and so I, I feel like there might be a sweet spot that gets found but I think that if you end up with uh, radical scepticism that ends up being quite quite nihilistic and, and so distrusting of authority and expertise that we, we just can't can't get through it is no good but then also sort of the the, the, the sort of sheeple type herd effect that you're describing that then is mm. being confused by just a passivity to authority is no good to any of us either mm. so I don't know I really don't know I think I'm on the fence like you are we'll have to keep asking each other that question as to where we've where we've been swayed I've been on, on bad days. I'm disappointed by either of those swings, and then on good days, I quite see the benefit of each of that, each of them as well. And so, I think mm. that optimism dial is the is the primary one. I'd say at the moment. I think um, if you think about it slightly differently from us as um, physiotherapists and clinicians, um, so an awful lot of clinicians talk to me about their. Um, uh, nervousness lack of confidence and often lack of faith in what they have been taught to deliver to clients understandably because of this you know huge change that we're going through in terms of our evidence base and um our our paradigms in in our in the clinical world it can lead to that feeling and i remember it of almost feeling like you're on autopilot saying stuff and then the, at the same on the other shoulder there's this little voice going yeah you, you know that's not um, entirely true and why are you saying that and, and it's become yeah. a and i think this whole process i hope would lead us to greater comfort with just um with you know not saying things as a mantra and on autopilot and questioning a little bit but also feeling more comfortable with the fact that 
us and to a certain extent us and the patient are finding our way and that is absolutely okay and that is evidence-based um and, and that ties in with what we've been talking about what what we're doing with the patient is we are we're finding matched against the evidence that we do know we're finding what motivates them and how to create the best scenario mm. as opposed to just these recipes and autopilot things which frustrated us and diminished our confidence and and that that I totally agree with, and I, I guess that also is kind of why I am concerned to that effect, though, in that when we kind of know that this should be individualized and tailored and should be carefully delineated, and that any data should be looked for and teased apart and stuff, and me and you by disposition, we like to blur the boundaries between categories. You know, we're kind of frustrated by the fact that things that people put it into boxes. Um, the, the way the world has been and the public health messaging has been is such that, and we're going to come on to that in a second, is like that they've wanted to be more matter of fact and, and crisp mm. lines and, and do's and don'ts and, 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 and these be the rules. And then they got mandated into law, which meant that there were no grey areas. There were no separation between, say, uh, at risk versus not, you know, some, some mm. um, shielding, of course. But generally speaking, it became quite blunt tools because they were, it was just simpler. Um, and that was the way that was decided to be done. Whereas what we're describing is that on a behaviour change individual level, when we're consulting or whether we're applying that to ourselves, we know we want to be a bit more nuanced than that. But I feel like that, that my fear is, is, is everyone looking upwards for the rules and therefore have lost some of their normal risk assessment and reasoning that would make them genuinely get back in touch with what motivates them to change or whether that's useful yeah i mean interesting i can only i'm just thinking about my own reaction to the the graphs and the chris witty um speeches and all that kind of stuff and i think what was going on in my head at the time was yeah okay thank you those are the facts i do know that nobody actually knows what's going on here um and you know each country is approaching it differently and you know rationally i know we are just making this up as we go along with some facts and i'm okay with that right. and i guess that's a bit how i, how I approach that sounds terrible doesn't it that's a bit how i approach this here as well if i'm honest yeah 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 no so that's the thing is that it, i do feel it, it, it was quite pleasant for a time, but yeah, the, the stable head above the water whilst the legs are thrashing is, is the thing that became ever more ever more clear as we've have sort of meandered through it. Unfortunately for me, the, the incoherence of much of it has been frustrating. And I fear that what that's going to do to bleed into behaviour change, that's what's fascinating about the timing of this podcast, not because of the new, new year necessarily we've been there. It's more that the, the timing of it relative to culture in the pandemic is such a fascinating one. Like I can see ways in which this, this whole thing will lead to some some positives with regards to people initiating and, and being able to maintain behaviour changes that are positive for their health. Mm. And then I can also see ways in which it will just, it's a hard line, it's a, to give benefit to people there, it's a hard landscape, there's such instability there, right? Get into a good routine and then they close the gym again. You know, just mm. like I can really understand what people mm. were, sod trying until I know for sure. Until the gyms have been open cleanly for 12 months, I'm not going to bother setting foot in one. I can understand that rationale because people are just like having the carpet pulled from under them. Um, or does the they get into a really positive routine? Of the triangle, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, yeah absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. And people get into good, good walking habits, and then having to isolate from a contact or, or whatever it might be. You can so understand it. Um, I want to, uh, I want to talk then more on that on the on that public health level for a second, because there has been 
the, the powers that be seem to be really into nudge theory. They, they have nudge units within within government. That seems to be fair for me to say is the primary mechanism in which they've decided to deliver that. And it's something that, interestingly, you know, I've been able to. Um, you can imagine how um, my, my dinner parties are pretty pretty boring. Um, so I'm, I've been talking about this stuff for years and frustrated about it and struggled to like the touch paper and interest in others. Uh, whereas more recently, people are, are seeing and witnessing some of that mm. stuff. I've had a problem with it uh, for many years uh, for various reasons, which I'm happy to, to unpack later. But it's something that is, there has been, um, that has been the, the choice um, and for some good reason. So you mentioned earlier that presenting people with just the facts of the matter and saying, well, here, here, it, here it is, is not on an individual level and on a population level, not, not good enough, right? You need to, to sharpen your messaging. I think, and I agree with that. However, I fear that then it becomes manipulative um, and, and that the end then starts to justify the means if you go too far towards what, what many nudge theorists now do and it's really affecting the way in which we live our lives and our politics and our culture so i wondered if you could just you know give your take on that as well as then what you feel the evidence is on that broader level when we're not now no longer talking about individuals which me and you naturally draw into because that's our expertise i just wondered on your on the bigger picture stuff what, what's your take on that well, whether nudge theory is the right way to go well my understanding tell me if you agree is that nudge theory is about positive reinforcement, indirect suggestion, not not using education and um, uh, enforcement. You're you're trying to influence rather than enforce. Is that your understanding? Yeah, of yeah we, we want we want the nation pre pandemic. We want we want the nation to eat less sugar. And so there's various different ways we can nudge them to do that. And so then it becomes uh, there's the economic factors with regards to the sugar taxes. And then there's the there's, there's these public health messaging and things like that. And so and then there's uh, this is uh, incentive structures and stuff just layered in, in amongst it. Um, and and that that's the you know, various different nudges in which they might do it. Yeah, and I think I mean, a lot of people are quite cynical, aren't they? Um, if you just move away from the pandemic a minute and talk about um, climate change and all the carbon taxes, a lot of people are quite cynical, aren't they, about these big companies seemingly now suddenly all doing the right thing. And yet it's, you know, if you mm. look at it closely, there's um, financial motivation for them. Um, I don't I don't think there's a lot of evidence for things like financial motivation in the long term as though that you sent me a study um, or showed me a study just now didn't you about financial incentives actually that was for health behaviors wasn't it um, yeah you, yeah I was going to come on to that in a, in a little while yeah so that's that's the financial incentives for health behavior change work and, and there are there's some evidence that you, they do that doesn't yeah. sustain naturally it has got a, a long tail but yeah, it, uh, it does, and we're seeing a bit of that subtly with regards to insurance companies and stuff. And you can have this, you can have this watch as long as you do these things mm. and stuff. It's... I mean, intuitively, I, I I struggle to see how that works because the rewards, to me, the reward needs to relate to the um, the question in the first place, um, and that's that's difficult collectively, isn't it? And that's why we keep going back to the individual because. How do you what what politicians, I guess, are trying to find is what's the collective vision, carrot, identity that we can present to people yeah. that is is broad enough or um, enticing enough on, on a broad enough scale to make people change. And, and that's I, I do actually think it's the right way to go by. I think it's incredibly hard. Um, but in reality, 
I think we probably all function on what we were just talking about, a, a, a bit of structure, which is based on education and facts and a little bit of stick, and then a, a lot of carrot underneath. I mean, I hear loads of people saying, you know, I really like this work, and maybe they're talking about coaching or counselling type work. I really like it, but I need a little bit of structure. And I right. think that's probably where most people sit. There are very mm. few people, well, you get people on all ends of the spectrum, don't you? But I think there is a majority that like to be um, presented with the facts and then given choice um, and, and given the opportunity to find this self-efficacy, this reason for, for doing something that is actually meaningful to them. Yeah, I see what you mean. I think that that's the, that's the move. And I think that part of the frustration mine and other, others um, is that then if you if you're not if you if you if you're somewhat censorious of facts of the matter and, and objective data that therefore the plebs can't dare mm. interpret that data it's almost then if 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 nudge theory or or public health messaging that's really quite tight and controlled and and and, and spun is the only show in town then that's the thing that's concerning yeah. for me so there, there's no they reason why the evidence certainly doesn't say that this needs to be uh the thing and the only thing and nothing else can can go near it um and that's one of the things that i get frustrated by admittedly i could spoil the podcast by being on my sort of hobby horse there anti-ideological hobby horse about this stuff so i don't want to do that but fundamentally it's um a, a book i'll recommend and, and certainly put in the in the in the show notes and make a note of in this pdf we're going to create for you uh, a book it's a bit academic but it's called neuroliberalism which was a, a, a really interesting book um a few years old now but it's this idea in which sometimes the cognitive behavioural sciences are being manipulated for political ends in, in a neoliberal framework that mm. can be corporatized. And this idea that then it becomes then just the excuse for spin. And if spin is, you know, this, this Alistair Campbell school of spin that is then still very much prevalent and, and, and famed within politics the world over, that on steroids is just propaganda. And so we've got to try and make sure we're mindful of the fact that then it, it can't be the only show in town. And so this this book was a particularly good one in 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 helping to to join those dots between sort of health neuroscience and and mm. then and then the politics of it. Um, but as I say, I, I won't go off on one on that, uh, which is a, a bit of a hobby horse for me. Do you not think, though, Jack, that the the spin is like a separate entity, which is the problem in itself, and, and you could apply that spin to the carrot or the stick i mean you can, i think what you're what i'm hearing you're saying is that if you start spinning nudge then that becomes manipulative um it's just yeah i mean it, that's wrong in the same way that manipulating the facts is wrong too but i sort of see that the spin is a is a separate societal issue that can be applied to both those approaches yeah to some degree it's just that this thing becomes part of the message around so the the, the nudge um yeah could be kept isolated but then it kind of naturally the only way you're going to be able to make nudge related behavior changes is through the media to actually influence the subjects of which is doing it so that's where it becomes spun um and the, the facts are sometimes then then tidied up and tinkered with um as a means of what should be and shouldn't be presented is kind of what i'm meaning i think um so it can, yeah, is it separate? Is it, I don't know, I, I struggle, like nothing separate to me, does it? So I admittedly I'm blurring those lines a little bit perhaps. But I think that um, the, 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 big, the big problem that I have and, and why I think it becomes really concerning when people apply these things to patients, which I'll bring you back to in a second if I can, because mm. I'd love your thoughts on this, is that the 
the ends justifies the means too often because you have made a decision, right? We have made a decision that this is bad for you and this will be better for you. And often majorly, it might be majorly justified. Let's just take, let's just take the, the, the basic holy grail of this talk, sort of conversation, which is smoking cessation. Right? It's just that we've mm. decided that not smoking is better for you than smoking. You're not going to get me opposing that. But they've gone with that. And then it's like any nudge and therefore any means to get you to nudge in that direction is only going to be good. Right. Then in that instance, you might get something through because it's so clear that that is a positive thing to do. That therefore, when you start to get into subtleties that that haven't got quite the weight of evidence to support them as overtly as smoking versus not, then you've started with what you're considering to be a fact of the matter. And therefore, again, we, the population, are the lemmings that are then being nudged in a direction mm. because then be the facts, right? That's the thing that's concerning rather than trying to recognize that there is some agency and autonomy amongst each individual autonomous human. And, and that's the bit where the spin comes in because you're never going to get away with that unless you're going to have some form of trendy communication to sort of spin it to, to the populace because mm. they, they, they be, that is where it becomes manipulative. And if you apply that on an individual level, which I fear that some therapists do you know if you get too carried away down the nlp train right for those that don't know that's neuro-linguistic programming which has its place but fundamentally as a, an entire entity is considered um a pseudoscience if people get carried away on it that's where people do feel that they can then use language techniques and and, and behaviors and and, and, mm. and touch and other clever strategies to manipulate and move people for whatever ends that they might see fit. Um, and it's like they, they, they try and blur the lines between that and hypnosis, mm. you know? So that's, that's kind of, I'm unpacking my beef a little bit there, but on that individual level, do you share those concerns if people go too far that way with people and become coercive within, I imagine within coaching, it becomes a big ethical mm. issue or am I overplaying that? And that's a very rare and niche thing that only criminals would do. <laughs> no, it, it definitely um, rings true with coaching. And I think it, it really emphasizes the um, the self-regulation and the self-control that you have to apply when you are the coach, the therapist, whatever, to keep questioning. I think you made a really good point, Jack. And it, it, I'm just thinking in a situation that happens in coaching sometimes is you can be talking to um, the person you're working with about a possible solution and they raise something which sounds really enticing and sounds good and does feed into, you know, just happens to, tick your boxes as well and it gets really it's quite exciting to both start moving towards this thing mm. and but you're right as a conscientious coach or therapist your job is to keep dropping in the questions like okay but what about this and almost flipping it um if we, if we change tap now and actually went in this direction and and if the if the client is still coming back and going no 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 you know this is where I want to be rather than as you say you just drip feeding more and more and more persuasive statements that take you to the point which essentially you've both decided on from the word go um then you're taking a lot of the growth value out of that interaction absolutely yeah I know it's overused in culture these days but gaslighting is talked about and uh, from an old an old film I understand when I've looked into it um but this idea in which if if you're too coercive then you will just be um, persuading someone to, to, to disrupt their reality um, mm. and so that's something we wouldn't want to do I think that that's in, in coaching and in, in good 
physiotherapy interaction or MSK interaction, you're in a situation where you're going to want to, you're going to want to keep, keep inviting the person that you're working with to share their take on that. How are you feeling about that? How is that, how is that work and stuff? And, 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 and sometimes uh, people as therapists feel that that then undermines their own um, perception of conviction. Like people, what people want to put yeah. themselves up as being more assertive um, because there's some evidence to suggest that if you're dithery and unsure, then you're not going to be able to, to motivate compliance in something. But there is a, there is a, a fine line there where if you do being too matter of fact and too didactic, then you, you you're, you might get away with it if you've picked the if you've picked a winner you've picked the right solution in the right person fair play you know it might be that that mm. conviction had just worked but if you if if the shades are grey anywhere near that then it's not going to work. There's a fine line, isn't there, between positive reinforcement and just whitewashing something. Mm. So positive reinforcement generally good um, to keep motivation going and to to keep these sort of resolutions going or changes in behaviour. No, I agree, Joe. Really well done. Really good point. <laughs> thank you jack <laughs> i'll keep going <laughs> um and there you've put me off my point now um Sorry. uh but yeah i was just remembering even as a young therapist i constantly found myself um after a treatment session asking the patient not to say what they thought would please me or saying you don't have to right, tell me right, better right, just right. to make me smile yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um yeah, yeah. and you know we're all generally quite nice people that probably our patients want to please a lot of the time and i yeah, think we've yeah. got to be quite aware of that it's a really good point yeah for sure yeah don't say that for me you know yeah. <laughs> be good to do we're gonna to need to get you better yeah for sure um, just to, just to wrap us up then, Joe. With regards to um, not necessarily New Year's resolutions, but let's just say behaviour change. Um, if you can give me a, a, a top tip for a therapist when applying it to themselves, of which you work in um, obviously a lot in your coaching, and then also for what you would suggest that people do and take within initiating behaviour change in others as therapists. If you could just give us the what you feel would be the the, the biggest take homes. Yeah. Um, in, in essence, this is um, a, bit of a repeat of, bit of a repeat of what I said last year, but it was true then and it's true now. Um, so start with a vision or if you like an identity. So create, allow yourself to really go big to start with. Um, you know, this, this thing that you're going to move towards has got to be enticing or the identity that you want to move towards has got to be enticing. There's a, a lot of evidence to suggest that to start talking about yourself as a person that um, doesn't smoke is a lot better than saying, no, I won't have that cigarette. I've decided to stop today. So I am a non-smoker. So start creating that vision and that identity. Um, enjoy that and put a lot of technicolor into it. You know, how does it feel, smell, taste to to be in that vision and that identity? Then start to bring in the structure. Just to go back to the conversation we were having in having a, a moment ago. So, if I was to be heading towards that vision in X period of time, and you need to define when that is, what would I need to be doing twelve months from now? And that's where some actual things need to be done on paper. Yeah, this will I love need to. Have bought a new house um change my uh uh i was gonna say change my partner it's a bit dramatic anyway um what big things <laughs> need to be in place um same question six months three months and then you start getting to the really close time scales of one month one week one day that one day one is probably the most important and if any of you have read james clear's atomic habits work it's it's that even even if it's a two minute 
um, action that happens tomorrow, but it's related to that vision, then that's what sets you off on the path. That's what gets the elephant moving because there, there's been a whole pattern. It's not just some random behavior which feels really hard and non-directive. It's a small, tiny action which relates to this huge, huge path and vision towards something that you are absolutely 100% invested in. Um, either find ways to find to hold yourself accountable or maybe farm that out to somebody else. You know, Tell someone about your plan, ask them when and how to hold you accountable, create some kind of contract with them um, and keep building those small habits as you go along that path. But I'd, I'd say that if you want the top tip, it's start with a vision and an identity that is enticing enough to keep drawing you forward in that towards motivation for long enough to create real sustainable change. Mm, fantastic and, and what about obviously a lot of that is applicable then to try and elicit that and, and, and enhance that in others but are there anything anything else that you'd add as a top tip for us as therapists then trying to, to get the best out for our patients it may just be that you need to be that accountability partner you you, you create a contract with the client with a client okay i now understand exactly where you want to be hand on heart, that's going to take some work. And I'm going to be the person that is sometimes cheering you on and sometimes asking you, have you done this? And let's agree these time scales now. So I think it's just getting in partnership in that process with the patient, with the client. Mm, no, I totally agree. And I'd say that the, if I was to, if I was to, um, I was asked this six months ago at a student conference I was speaking at and things, and it was just a cracking question. Like, well, what would you, if you had, one thing that you would uh, that you feel that you add into your subjective assessment that, that makes it different because you know they, they, they've recognized the whole point was about the power of the question mark I think might even have been my presentation at that instance and uh, and I said I'm not going to give you a, a particularly brilliant question necessarily but I just would say if you go that extra bit deeper than even feels necessarily comfortable like I find myself asking and I'd encourage for, especially if you're trying to initiate behavior change and people talk about rapport and stuff like that that's difficult to teach but it's like if someone says oh i want my dog i'm not a doggy person but i'm asking them what breed a dog because it matters to me whether it's a jack russell or an alsatian mm. or a greyhound right or a doberman it kind of matters then and i don't know dogs i don't care much about dogs it sounds a bit cruel but i just mean that like it, it matters to their behavior and then by asking that question and then you might understand their walking volume or you might understand about why that might affect their shoulder problem because it's a big dog that's pulling that they're then using their other hand and you know, so that, that, that's what i was encouraging them to do and i think that when it comes to behavior change when i, I ask myself why why do i do that am i just that nosy like why do i interrogate in a in a in a subjective assessment far more than my, my peers often have and it's because i find that that is one of the things that makes me really understand what makes them tick i've understood them at a level that most therapists wouldn't and then i'm able to utilize that information as a means of helping them to initiate those behavior changes and also reminding them where necessary as to why they're doing what we're suggesting we're doing yeah. you know I'm, okay. I'm able to go back to that and what you've done there, Jack, probably you do realise it, but um, in asking the breed of the dog, you have subconsciously said to the, the client, I'm interested in you and I'm actually interested in your dog that you love. Um, and you're also giving yourself reference points to come back to, which you know, from an NLP point of view, because you know that dog is a, um, a St. Bernard called George, and you reference that, that goes straight to the point with them. Um, you know, that's that's a tag on that is so meaningful to them. And it's a, it's a really 
um, useful linguistic reference and yes it gives you information because the St Bernard is a huge dog and it's different to walking a Jack Russell but yeah there are so many um, connection uh, relationship building benefits there as well. No it's a great it's a great point and I think that when people think well just naturally because I do love dogs I ask what their dog's name is it's like yeah you're not getting much from the dog's name apart from what you've just described there like you can use that as a tag but you're not getting what I'm describing there much like if I um, ask them what, what position do you play in rugby partly I'm interested because I care but then also that really matters prop forward versus fullback different needs and expectations mm. on the body and therefore if you need to go and swat up on that then do so because if I ask the same question in lacrosse I don't necessarily know what the difference is between a winger and a defender in lacrosse but I'll go and find out because the bodily needs might be different and it's just those those things that where you know I think that that front end understanding and then that that depth and and spending that extra bit of time mm-hmm. uh, whether that's on the clock or 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 just happens to be while you squeeze it in is just spending that extra time to get to know someone and, and, and whether you're talking to a patient or a friend at a party, you're just showing that you're interested, aren't you? And yeah, that's yeah, all absolutely. any of us want is to be seen and for someone to to really want to understand us. And where possible, get it so that that's not doing it for effect. You know, don't be acting. We're not encouraging you to act. We're encouraging you to ask because you care and not ask for the sake of it. It's not a flowchart of questions. It's not a crib sheet. It's that you're asking because that is... That, might not be, but it may well inform something, not necessarily right now, it might not inform their diagnosis, not inform their exact existing management plan, but it could well inform a certain plateau that you might encounter in a few weeks, a month's yeah. time. But anyway, thanks so much, Joe. I'm so glad we've been able to do this. What a cracking way to, to kick off the new year, certainly for me, and I'm glad we're able to broadcast it. Just remind people as to where they can find out more about you and get, get onto the Hub. Yeah, so the Me Hub is the community section of MeHab. My company is, is MeHab, www.mehab.co.uk is the website. Um, Me Hub is the community, and you can join that from the MeHab website. You can also um, uh, hear more discussions with me on the You Matter podcast, which I host. Um, and social media wise, Twitter, my handle is MeHab underscore Joe, and I'm on LinkedIn just as Joe Turner. Fantastic. Absolutely. Huge success story of 2021 is uh, is our collaboration and, and me having general uh, fantastic work, incredibly timely as well with regards to what we need to do, but also such an important, we knew that there was a gap in, in what we were doing with Physio Matters where we weren't necessarily, we were seen by some as being the awkward buggers that were berating people for not being evidence informed, but not necessarily helping with the soul search and introspection that is required to sort of rebrand and redevelop yourself. And, and I feel like that is a, that some of that was a very fair critique. Some of it a bit heavy handed, I'll admit, because it wasn't on purpose. But what, what You Matter, Joe's podcast within our network has done, as well as then partnering up with the Mehab project and Joe as a person, has really helped us to recognise just how important it is that that next step is taken together as a community and as a supportive network as well as then making sure that people don't feel alone when they want to sort of work on themselves. And so thank you so much, Joe, for what you've done last year. I know we're going to continue to partner into 2022 and I'm really excited for what we've got planned. 
Um, as I've alluded to in this episode, we're going to put a PDF together, which is going to be sort of a, a bridge version of the show notes, essentially, of what we've talked about today, as well as some references to some of the studies that we've talked about and some of the books that we, we clearly have enjoyed in this. Me and Joe could talk for hours on this stuff. It's a, a fascinating thing, and there's even little sub-hobby horses, as, as you've seen uh, in both of us for this. Uh, but uh, as, you, as you've been uh, signposted there, there's the UMATA podcast, as well as this stuff coming up on Wellbeing Wednesdays, which we've done uh, over time on chewing it over which you can look back on but also no doubt me and joe will be chatting about this stuff on chewing it over into the new year as well so thank you so much happy new year and uh take care and that was session 97 can you believe it? Right. Thanks so much for Joe, especially at short notice with me thinking I'd organised this ahead of time and I hadn't. So here we are on New Year's Day with bags under our eyes, um, talking about behaviour change and hopefully uh, going to initiate some of that ourselves as well. Um, thank you as ever for, for joining our community and being part of what is an incredible movement uh, through Physio Matters, physio-matters.com for all of your CPD needs as well as all your, just all your MSK needs generally as well. You're going to be noticing more stuff cropping up on there from recruitment through to uh, other education aspects and events and meetups and all sorts of stuff we're going to be doing for our members which is very exciting uh, but yeah hope you've enjoyed this podcast and hope you can initiate behavior changing yourselves and those of which you're serving as patients and clients into the new year i've been jack chew i'll be seeing you on chewing it over in the new year as well we're going to do two live streams a week uh, so do check out chewing it over wherever you get your podcasts and live streams but it's also cast across social media we're probably going to go on mondays and fridays and we're going to be able to be more organized as to what we're going to be talking about each lunchtime on mondays and fridays so i'm uh, really looking forward to that for you as well as various other innovations in the new year i'm really pleased that i remembered this time to get joe to do the cheesy sign out for so for big Physio Matters purists, you're going to enjoy a voice that isn't mine doing the sign out. So, cut to Joe. You've been listening to the Physio Matters podcast discussing Physio Matters because Physio Matters. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs>